Welcome to episode three of Seed Pod, the podcast that reflects the communities of Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows back to themselves through the eyes of five co-hosts and numerous guests. We gratefully acknowledge that we're broadcasting to you from the unceded traditional territories of the Kwantlen First Nation and Kitsi First Nation. My name's Christian Cowley. Today we have two segments for you. We will be speaking with Jessica Bramo, a postdoc researcher. Jessica conducted a study of attitudes towards homelessness in Maple Ridge with a team of colleagues from the Criminology Department of Wilfrid Laurier University. She has some eye-opening findings. But first, we bring you to segment two of a multi-segment series on the Hundred-Year War on the Wild Alouette Watershed Salmonids. Joining me today is co-host Jack Emberley. Jack, can you recap what we covered in the first segment of the series? Christian, when we talk about a war on Alouette watershed salmon, we're reviewing what happened to thousands of fish denied access to Alouette Lake after the dam was built in 1926 to allow hydroelectric companies the use of water for hydroelectric power. To do this, they had to do two things that decimated salmon stocks in the lake and in the river. We said last time adult salmon could no longer get into the lake to spawn, and the juvenile fish could not swim out to the ocean again because of the dam. We pointed out that sockeye smolts attempting to outmigrate followed a water diversion tunnel from the north end of Alouette Lake to Stave Lake. And in that journey, many, probably most, died in the tunnel or were ground up in turbines in Stave and Howard Lakes. That's right. Now, this has been going on for a hundred years and is still going on over a hundred years later. So, although a community wants salmon to return to the upper watershed today, the big obstacle to that is the destruction of fish, and that's called entrainment. That subject is only now being studied by BC Hydro, which means that there is no immediate end to this type of destruction. And a ladder above the dam would serve no purpose because smolts would die in the tunnel or turbines. Exactly. So it's important to note at this point that Section 35 of the Federal Fisheries Act prohibits HADS. That's habitat, alteration, destruction, or disturbance. Disturbance of fish and or habitat. The DFO gave BC Hydro a legal exemption that exists to this day. Entrainment has been legal, and the Ministry of the Environment signed on to that exemption. Therefore, all of these corporate and government big guns have collectively warred on salmon to this day. And all have consistently conspired to delay any return of the salmon to the upper watershed. And, if that wasn't enough damage done... They have also, for decades, failed to ensure that there is even enough water for the salmon that rear and spawn in the river itself. So in this episode, we'll journey back in time with salmon expert Jeff Clayton, who will show us that this pattern of trading salmon for power has dominated, even as salmon stocks throughout B.C. approach extinction. Jeff's history of the Alouette began in the 1940s as a boy who swam in the river, fished for salmon, and later became an advocate for the fish, first in the river and then in the entire watershed, which includes the lake and its tributaries. So when we talk about trading fish for power, 
We should start by following the money, shouldn't we? I began with asking Jeff how much revenue BC Hydro gets from the generation of electricity from the Alouette. Jeff, you've suggested Alouette generating stations earn BC Hydro $157 million per year. How do you come to the earnings estimate for BC Hydro? By their own document, they sent us um, after our request in 2018. It looks as if BC Hydro makes a fair amount of money draining this one reservoir. And local people and First Nations have been asking for a fish ladder over the dam to allow the spawning fish to reach the lake. Why won't BC Hydro fund the fish ladder? I asked Jeff that. Here's his comment. BC Hydro has made so much money from Alouette power stations. Why do you think they wouldn't fund a ladder? Well, it... um... From their point of view, it's quite complex. In 2001, they engaged um, Global Resources and a biologist, uh, Benjafield, to do an investigation in what they call their bridge coastal region, which was from the lower interior right across to Vancouver Island, a number of old stations through there. And the object was to see if Getting fish above the dam had habitat for them to access, um, and if there was any other issues. Benjafield found on, on two neighboring watersheds, the Coquitlam and Alouette, that there was an issue uh, with fish coming above the dam because uh, of entrainment. Uh, they both had diversion tunnels that took the watershed out of its natural course. In the Alouette's case, it took it under Mount Crickmore and diverted it into uh, the state watershed. Consequently, um, it was thought by Benjafield that the uh, the smolts, the young of the year, uh, would be sucked into that tunnel and lost. Uh, he also uh, felt that there wasn't enough habitat above the dam because that had been flooded out, those lower creeks on the flat plain areas uh, had been flooded out with the raising of the water. So he said it wasn't viable. So how many fish would benefit from a fish ladder over the dam? Here's Jeff with an answer to that question. What do we know about the number and species of salmon in the Alouette before 1926 when the dam went up? Well, uh, very clearly it it was, um, it was a watershed that supported all species, uh, salmonids, and that meant about seven of them. It was a very healthy watershed. Uh, we know in history uh, that First Nations, in particular Catesy, had weirs down at the mouth, and uh, they considered them their uh, their basket of, uh, of of returning salmon that they could stock their cupboards with. And by all accounts, uh, they didn't put numbers of them, but in all accounts, it was a huge run of of salmon that returned there of all species. How do those old numbers compare with the numbers today? Well, obviously, uh, it's only a shadow of the numbers that appear today. And further than that, the, uh, the sockeye were trying to introduce, they were lost to the system after the dam, and so were the Chinook. And then, of course, the other uh, species of salmon were reduced. So 
Today, we're trying to introduce uh, Chinook back into the system. We haven't been too successful. We may have three or 400 Chinook, and they're of the wrong species. We had to take them from the Chilliwack hatchery and bring them over. They're not the original stock, which were adapted uh, through eons to the timing of the spring uh, freshets on the Alouette. They're a different fish, and they might not readapt to the Alouette at all. Sockeye... We're uh, desperately trying to reestablish, but then, of course, we have that huge uh, issue of entrainment, which isn't even understood, let alone addressed yet. So the main focus today from the community is getting salmon over the dam and back into the lake. But for decades previously, the focus has been on simply getting enough water for fish to rear and spawn in the river itself. And that has been a monumental struggle, waged firstly by a few determined individuals like Clayton, and then slowly more and more members of the larger community. Let's let Jeff take us through that part of the war on salmon that had to be fought before the battleground became lake fish and their habitat. In the 1960s, to check water levels in the Alouette, you walked down the river took pictures of hot tubs people had made because there was little water to swim in. When you showed these to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, what was their response? Well, I, I, I was quite amazed because I, I phoned them, talked to their headquarters, West Hastings, and told them what I had seen. I told them that I walked down the bed of the river starting from the dam. I told them that there was it was hot summer weather. There was absolutely no water coming from the dam whatsoever. And therefore, I could walk the main stem of this river. And that when I got down to the residential uh, area, I found that people had moved rocks around and tried to make what I call little hot tubs uh, that they could sit down and soak in. In some cases, they'd line them with black plastic. I, I took pictures and looked into these um, little hot pools, if you will. And I found uh, small uh, juveniles had been trapped in there. Some were in desperate straits and some had died. Therefore, I phoned DFO. I also sent the pictures I had taken and I said, uh, you know, we've got a desperate situation here. And they said, well, they'd come out and look at the, um, at the pools. Uh, you know, that obviously was not right. But addressing the flows itself, uh, they said that, you know, BC Hydro had water licenses um, there. And if they were to ask for water, they would probably be charged by BC Hydro for it. They were um, developing a, a new concept up in the interior of steward uh, spawning channels, and uh, they were putting what uh, money they had into that, and they felt that um, they would get a good return in, in remote areas. The Alouette was one of those areas that was urbanized and becoming more urbanized and would be lost eventually for a healthy salmon stream, if not already. And therefore, they didn't see themselves getting put into a position of, of spending money on it. And I was shocked. Well, how did, you, uh, how did you feel when DFO said you were wasting your time trying to get BC Hydro to release more water down the river? Well, I, you know, I thought they were abrogating their responsibilities, um, not only to uh, the, uh, the framework that they were set up under to protect our West Coast salmon, but they were also uh, 
Canadian government was abrogating their responsibilities uh, to First Nations under the um, Indian Act of 1872, I believe, where they uh, they were responsible to these kind of issues. So they were responsible on two fronts. And uh, of course, I was getting a, a West Coast uh, opinion, but nevertheless, it probably reflected uh, those people sitting in their comfort zone in Ottawa. So here we are with battle lines clearly drawn. One individual speaking for salmon realizes that there simply isn't enough water to sustain the populations in Alouette River. There's not enough for kids to swim in. And there are other problems such as pollution that will become obvious as well. Does the federal agency responsible for fish and habitat step in to correct this situation? The answer is a resounding no. But in segment three, we'll look at the whole part of this story next time on the Hundred Years War on Wild Salmon. Like the blush on a young girl's face. She moves across this place Before the birds and my doubts appear The kiss of dawn is all I hear The sun she moves me And I get so lost in the pale beauty The sun she guest is Jessica Bramo. Jessica Bramo is a critical sociologist who recently finished her postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario. Her research interests include the interrelation between social inequality and criminalization, socio-legal processes and organizing institutions, and the experiences of at-risk populations. Jessica's research is developed alongside people experiencing marginality, her research seeks to influence social and policy change. Jessica has always worked with diverse populations. She has fond memories of working as a summer camp counselor for children, youth, and families living in social housing. Jessica recently became a parent and loves spending time with a child and partner. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me, Christian. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about this research. I met Jessica and her two colleagues, Erin Day and Carrie Sanders, back in 2019. That was when the evidence of homelessness was very apparent all over Maple Ridge, and more particularly in the form of Anita Place Tent City. The camp was our direct neighbor for about two years. Jessica, what brought your team all the way from Ontario to the modest little city of Maple Ridge? Yeah, that's a great question. So we know that research shows that about 35,000 people experience homelessness every night in Canada, with evidence, especially in the context of COVID-19, that this problem is getting worse. And to date, most of this research on homelessness has focused on these large urban centers, despite evidence that homelessness has always been present across different types of communities. 
And mid-sized cities in particular are unique because of this increasing visibility of homelessness in spaces and the need for these communities to act quickly to respond both this kind of changing reality um, while also trying to incorporate these new kind of experiences around homelessness into existing suburban identities. And so in this project, we were really interested in understanding narratives about homelessness that exist in mid-sized cities. And so this is kind of what brought us to Maple Ridge. And we chose Maple Ridge kind of as the best place to kind of do this because of what was happening at that time, both the size of the community, um, but also the substantial media attention that the community was drawing around this kind of heightened politicized nature of the issue of homelessness. And as you know, when we kind of came to Maple Ridge, this was at the time when um, there was really deep community tension. Anita's place had been legally sanctioned to be cleared. There was the new supportive housing program that had just opened up. And so there was all these things happening around homelessness. And so that kind of made coming to Maple Ridge really, really important to investigate how mid-sized cities in particular are kind of understanding these issues, but also tackling homelessness itself. Right. So who was the sponsor of the study? So the study received funding from the BC Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General, which is through the Office of Crime Reduction and Gang Outreach. Okay. And so this study also received interest from the RCMP, municipal police, and provincial representatives in BC. And because this project is connected to Laurier, it you know, received ethics approval from the Research Ethics Board at Laurier, right. um, kind of went through all of that formal, uh, that formal process. And while the funder was, you know, the BC Ministry of Public Safety, I do want to stress that the funder was really interested in under, under kind of uncovering or unpacking these different narratives about homelessness in Maple Ridge in particular. And the real goal was about trying to address the misperceptions that exist by sort of challenging that rhetoric with fact, right? And so listening and trying to hear what those misperceptions might be, and then trying to see what evidence might exist to support or confront those perceptions. Right, yeah. And so we have complete independence over the research and the findings, and the funder doesn't have any say in what we found how we describe it, or um, what we do with the research. So they really just were interested in this question and then kind of gave the reins to us to to investigate that. So uh, I think you've outlined some of the original objectives of the study. Um, Did you find yourselves altering any of them as you learned more? Absolutely. So, I mean, initially we were really interested in these narratives about homelessness, about crime and safety, and how they were kind of unfolding in these mid-sized suburban communities. And I believe that any research that you do really needs to be flexible and kind of let the community drive the research itself. Um, And this was very much true in the work that we did in Maple Ridge. So as we learned more about homelessness, learned more about the community, we had to kind of uh, adjust some of the questions that we were asking or some of the directions that we were going. It was very, very apparent at that time when we were there that the camp was a central focus for folks. People wanted to talk about camp. People wanted to think about Anita's place, but also about um, some of the ways that modular housing was kind of being erected in the community. A lot of the discussion, and, and perhaps we'll get to this later on, was about discussions around drug use. 
And so we had to recognize that we weren't just going to be asking questions about homelessness, but about these other things that community itself uh, wanted to chat about. More holistic view of it. For sure. So you must have connected with then a, a fairly broad spectrum of people. Can you characterize those various categories? Yeah, for sure. So we were interested in hearing the perspectives of people across these three, what we call stakeholder groups. Um, and so the first were folks with lived experience of homelessness. Uh, we also spoke with community representatives, which included business owners, other local residents and service providers. And then the last category or the last stakeholder group included law enforcement. So that was both police officers and bylaw. So we tried to gather these kind of perspectives or these understandings of these issues uh, using something called semi-structured interviews, okay. which really allows you to ask these open-ended, in-depth questions, provides an opportunity for folks to kind of tell you what they want you to know about broader issues. So it's right. not this kind of strict kind of script uh, type of thing. And I think it was really important for us in in this project that we attended to diversity, especially among the group of folks with lived experience of homelessness. Right. Um, so wanted to recognize, you know, that people experiencing homelessness in this community are not just folks who lived at Anita's camp or, you know, are not just folks who have some kind of connection to, to the encampment itself. We also had to talk to folks who don't live in camp people mm -hmm. who are member, members of the um, Two-Spirit LGBTQ plus community. We also have to talk to folks who are living with health condition or who are um, Indigenous. Um, and so to kind of get at that diversity, particularly among the group of folks with lived experience, we had two research coordinators um, who really helped facilitate our access to this group of folks. Right. And these two folks, um, these two research coordinators were people with lived experience of homelessness themselves. They were connected to the community, very kind of well-informed about both Maple Ridge, but also the services that were provided and how we could actually access right. and gain, gain access to people. So that really helped us to kind of get a sense of, of, of the actual community of people uh, experiencing homelessness in particular. Yeah, it's good to have uh, some of the inside view. Absolutely. So my burning question for you is, uh, what did your research reveal about attitudes towards homelessness? It's a great question. So I think that I always like to, when I think about my time at Maple Ridge, is to really remember and kind of think through that there's a lot of really great work happening in Maple Ridge to support people experiencing homelessness. Yet in the midst of all of that great work, there are these really dominant, entrenched misperceptions right. that really inform how the community thinks about these issues. And I think that there are concerns that people have. And you might think that, you know, those concerns are legitimate. You know, people are worried about their safety or they're worried about their businesses or they're worried about some of these bigger, bigger issues that are happening. But a lot of those concerns are being kind of informed by or um, organized by these misperceptions that are not tied to the research or tied to the evidence that we have. Um, so, you know, there's attitudes that people who are homeless are all criminals, that they're all drug users, that they're all violent. Yeah. And we have 
accounts from people experiencing homelessness themselves, as well as evidence from other research to show that that's not the case. We also have this, this narrative that people who are experiencing homelessness, you know, are, are thieves, are stealing, are are doing these kinds of criminal activities. Mm -hmm. And what often happens, I find it super interesting is that we, when we kind of take up that narrative or when, when folks really participate in that narrative, they don't think about or it prevents them from seeing how people who with lived experience of homelessness are also victims of crime. They're right. also experiencing violence. Right. And so when we are only focusing on on that misperception, we don't we're not able to see the full picture. I think there's some other attitudes that folks had around, you know, people who are homeless shouldn't be downtown. Um, yeah. yet. If that's the case, then where should folks be and where should folks go? If that's where services are located, if that's where support is, then it, it makes sense for folks to be in that space. Yeah, especially keeping in mind they're all Canadian citizens. Exactly. And so why are we you know, wanting to further marginalize and exclude people with lived experience of homelessness to say, that's not, that's not your space, that's mine, that's where I that's where I belong. That's where I move and transgress through and you can't be there. Very, very difficult to, to kind of think about that. Like you're saying that like, these folks are Canadian citizens as well. Yeah. I think another really big one that I'm thinking about now is this disagreement that we saw around the effectiveness of abstinence based as opposed to harm reduction supports. Right. So people knowing what abstinence based is, being a little bit unclear as to how harm reduction supports work. And so I think that was one of the, another major attitude that across all stakeholder groups, people experiencing homelessness, community stakeholders, and the, and the law enforcement that we saw that as a community, not really understanding what, um, what works for people, if those services are even being offered in the community at all, what they look like, where they are. So I think that was another, another major attitude. I think, you know, one of the most contested issues that emerged from this research was whether people who are homeless in Maple Ridge are outsiders. Mm, And if they (laughs) are, whether they should matter to understandings of community membership. So, you know, if you are from the neighboring community, if you're from Surrey, if you're from Vancouver, you shouldn't be in Maple Ridge. This was the kind of sentiment that folks were saying. And that if that's the case, if you're not from here, then you shouldn't have access to the services and supports that we have. And so while I can kind of see that as trying to maintain this Maple Ridge identity about who we are and what that includes, the, the way that that works is to sidestep understandings of people with lived experience as actually being members of your community. Yeah. Right. And so we have lots of, of evidence, lots of data. The 2017 Pitt count data actually shows, you know, that 60% of homeless of people experiencing homelessness resided in Maple Ridge for 10 years or more. Yeah. And so these are not folks who are being dropped into the community who are just kind of stopping through or stopping by these are members of the community yeah and so i think that's one way to kind of show how the misperception works to then shape how you think about responses to homelessness Mm -hmm. if these folks don't belong to our community then we don't necessarily have to help and that's a problem right because we need to recognize that these folks are members of the community 
Oh, for sure. So what do you think some of the implications of these attitudes are? Well, I think there's definitely a reduced sense of belonging to the community, uh, particularly among uh, people experiencing homelessness. And so we heard sentiments around this that folks uh, feel excluded. They feel not seen. They definitely, there's this sense that they shouldn't be seen. And so there's active attempts to kind of stay away or. Right. Self-exclusion. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's really, really hard to um, to think about in a community that's so lovely as Maple Ridge, that this is what members of the community actually feel like when they're in that space. I think there's definitely also some stagnation in terms of moving forward and responding to these issues when the community is so kind of divided on what the issues actually are, who the issue yeah. belongs to and what should be done. And then I think finally, the last thing actually that that these attitudes do is that they undermine the work that is being done uh, to support people with lived experience of homelessness, because it's, it, right. you know, those don't come to the forefront. It's, it's all happening in the background, but that's not the dominant, the dominant story that's being told. Right. So was there anything in the course of the study that was new to you or surprised you or made you see one group or another in a slightly different light? Yeah. So I think, um, again, coming into the study at the time of um, Anita's place was particularly interesting in that there was a lot of discussion about the role of bylaw. Um, and that, for me personally, was surprising. Okay. Kind of, kind of hearing about the work that the bylaw uh, officers were doing, kind of um, what that work involves, how it was experienced by people with lived experience, but also understood by community stakeholders. Okay. I thought that was really interesting and very, very surprising to see how. Did you have any comparisons to other communities or other studies? I haven't seen bylaw be talked about as often, uh, to be honest. Police officers, for okay. sure, have, have definitely been talked about, particularly in the ways that homelessness and poverty more generally is criminalized. Bylaw officers, that was that was a bit surprising uh, for me, for sure. Yeah, so I don't think there's any disagreement in this city that uh, we'd all like to see homelessness end. But at this point in time, it seems to me there's kind of a, a clear divide still in opinions on how to deal with the issues that are involved. Some just want the opinions to go away, and they'll support policies and measures that simply hide the issues, literally in, in our mm -hmm. bushes. They're not particularly interested in looking at root causes or systemic failures, or even long-term solutions for that matter. They're, you know, these people are just busy enough making a living, keeping their families together. They don't have time for uh, homelessness, except as it affects them directly. So... To a lot of these people, it just means the theft of their property or unpleasant encounters on street corners and inconvenience. Then uh, another group is uh, what we call the vigilantes. Mm -hmm. And these are people who will harass and even attack people they perceive to be homeless, whether they are or not. Then there's a spectrum of people that are looking for longer term solutions, recognizing that these are complex issues and that there's a lot of root causes to uh, the issues and that it will require a lot of systems change. So I have a few questions for you in this context. Um, did you get a sense of these dynamics in your research? And do you see a pathway to bridge some of these divides? You know, what will it take and who has to do what? Mm -hmm. They're definitely, you know, kind of mirroring what you've mentioned here, this clear divide with vigilantes and, and the kind of actions that they're taking in terms of homelessness. And then, you know, other folks who, who want more long-term 
system changes. I think one of the things that this just kind of made me think about is how the vigilante group might be small in numbers, but the ways they go about their approach to to homelessness and to some of these issues is very loud. Yeah. Right. And it, it does drown out um, those folks who do want systemic long term change and who 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 might even really understand causes of homelessness or the conditions that create homelessness uh, for people. I do think that the kind of increasing visibility of homelessness in mid-sized cities like Maple Ridge yeah. is causing a bit of an identity crisis, right? That this is not what people remember or know of Maple Ridge. This is not what people expect of a place like Maple Ridge. And so folks are worried. Folks are concerned about, you know, what does this mean? Are we becoming a kind of larger metropolitan area are we, does this challenge who we, who we see ourselves as? I think there's a lot of folks who just want pe- these people experiencing homelessness to just get out, move out of the city, and that will kind of solve, solve that problem. But again, if, if that's going to be the approach that all mid-sized cities take, then where do people experiencing homelessness go? Right. Um, and we have to remember that there are, Lots of people who we talked to, I think there was, you know, of all the of all the people we talked to, maybe only one person said that they had been in Maple Ridge for less than a year. Everyone else yeah. has been in Maple Ridge. Like they see themselves as part of, of this community. Yes. And so, I mean, like you were kind of saying, we all want, you know, solutions. We all want things to happen fast. And seeing such this high level of human suffering is very difficult. But even more difficult is actually experiencing homelessness. Yes. And then, right? And, you know, if we think about the kind of situation or the context of vigilantes, having that added to an already diff- difficult experience kind of makes it near impossible to think about change, right? Because this is so, it's so hard. It's so difficult. Like you, you mentioned extreme forms of violence, right? Yeah. People going out harassing uh, people they perceive, keyword as as homeless yeah and just wanting these problems to go away doesn't make them go away right there there needs to be as you've mentioned uh, some attention to the causes and conditions that produce homelessness and then also some systemic systemic change and so what we did in our research is to based on the perceptions that we heard based on those narratives to suggest some ways forward okay to kind of help bridge this divide. Um, and so we have uh, written a, a report that we're happy to share, it talks about these opportunities for change. So I think one of the biggest ones that uh, for me in this report is about trying to break this narrative on homelessness uh, in Maple Ridge in particular. And so recognizing that what causes homelessness is perhaps not as what people think it is, you know, like yeah. why people are, are in this situation, um, working with people with lived experience of homelessness and community groups and organizations to try to challenge that narrative yeah. could also be really helpful. Thinking about how the city itself uh, might create spaces for people experiencing homelessness uh, and housing insecurity to create community and create access to resources. You know, if everyone's being pushed out of the downtown core and pushed out of uh, these spaces, how are how are folks going to access services? 
how are folks going to learn about the services that are available in the community? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Thinking even a little bit about where the spaces are located, like not putting them on the edges of the of 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 the city, uh, making sure that there's spaces that people can access, that they're centrally located, you know, that they're kind of created alongside the expertise and leadership of people with lived experience of homelessness. Uh, that could that would be really helpful. And I think doing something we call a systems mapping of the services that exist in Maple Ridge particularly mental health and substance use services mm-hmm. would help to get a better understanding of what programs actually exist right. and where there might be gaps that could be filled. Because as I mentioned before, there was a little bit of a divide in terms of we want only abstinence only programs where we want, yeah. we don't want harm reduction and folks aren't really understanding what that is, but there might actually being, there might actually be some of those harm reduction services that are being offered in town. And so trying to, do that kind of exercise of seeing what is actually available. How do these services and supports talk to one another? Um, how are they coordinated? Might help to fill that gap in uh, people's awareness of these issues. Okay. So were there any stories of success that your research found? Totally. There's definitely a very obvious level of care that's apparent in the community. So there are folks who want to help, who are concerned about homelessness, who who want people to find housing, who want people to uh, escape or move out of, of these positions. I was also kind of really taken taken by the sense of family and community that exists among people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, these folks really are looking out for each other. They're wanting to support one another whenever possible. Um, and, and I do think that that's a reflection of situation in Maple Ridge itself, but also of the level of care that these folks have for one another. Right. Um, and there definitely is, despite, you know, some of these dominant, and not in numbers, but in terms of loudness, the kind of yeah. loudness of some of these misperceptions, that there are still people who are engaging and speaking out and fighting, fighting for, for people experiencing homelessness and people dealing with poverty. And I think learning about seed learning about some of the work that's taking place at coast and at rain city um, and petals people are finding spaces to get support even when they they don't feel welcome and so i think that's that was a really kind of nice nice to see in the research yeah for sure i mean maple ridge is kind of at a crossroads it's it's evolving from a a small town into a fairly large size city i mean it's called a mid-city and you know context but uh you know we're we're getting close to 100,000 people we're at about 85,000 now and right. you know we've evolved from about 5,000 people so but there's still that sense you know when you walk along the street in this town you usually uh get greeted by the person you're passing it's right. it might just be a glance but it's it's a, a visible acknowledgement and you don't get that in the larger size cities no you don't so it's you, you know absolutely it's, don't and that kind of um hometown feel is is there in a lot of the citizens and you know certainly at the seed center we we get to to see a lot of that the caring and the uh the contributions that, that people make yeah so um i'd really like to thank you for uh for doing this today and for your insight into our society here in maple ridge we've got a lot to be proud of and a lot to work on obviously for so sure. the the first step is always understanding the, the many different perspectives that are out there 
I think you, you've given us a lot to work with. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. And thank you for this opportunity to share some of the details of this research. And, you know, I, I think it's also important that um, I take this opportunity also to thank the folks who took time out of their day to speak to us about the issues uh, of homelessness uh, in Maple Ridge. Are we going to see you back in the community for a follow-up study? I would love that. I mean, hopefully with the current pandemic that that happens sooner rather than later. But absolutely, I would love to come back uh, to Maple Ridge for sure. Well, we'd certainly love you uh, to come back and, and tell us more. Absolutely. Okay. I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thanks, Christian. Bye. This episode of SeedPod was hosted by Jack Emberley and Christian Cowley. Our guests were Jeff Clayton and Jessica Primo. The song Blush of Dawn was written and performed by Paula Justice and is based on a poem by Christian Cowley. Sound editing was performed by Christian. SeedPod is available on many popular podcast directories such as Spotify and Stitcher, as well as the Seed Center Society website. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us through our Patreon site, or by dropping into the Seed Center Neighborhood House, where we offer many free weekly programs and services. The Seed Center Society is a registered charity operating primarily in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows to provide community education on environment and development. Our mission is to connect people to community and foster an understanding of sustainability so that all living beings can thrive. Stay tuned for Episode 4, when we bring you part three of the Hundred Year War on Salmon, and Amy interviews Kristen Dobbs of Wellness on the Farm and the Struggle is Real podcast. Bye for now.